I'm going to read from um, the introduction to people. I sometimes think that my plays are just an excuse for the introductions with which they're generally accompanied. <laughs> These preambles, while often gossipy and with sidelights on the rehearsal process, also provide me with a soapbox from which I can address, sometimes more directly than I've managed in the play itself, some of the themes that crop up in the text. In the History Boys, it was private education. In the Habit of Art, biography. In People, though, I'm not sure. Rehearsals aren't just for the actors. They're also a first opportunity for the author to hear the play and find out what he or she has written. <laughs> but since this introduction is being put together in August 2012, nearly two months before rehearsals begin, I'm still to some extent in the dark about the play or what, if anything, it adds up to. Some plays seem to start with an itch, an irritation, something one can't solve or a feeling one can't locate. With people, it was a sense of unease when going round a National Trust house and being required to buy into the role of reverential visitor. I knew this irritated me but like the hapless visitors whom Dorothy confronts as they are leaving, I still found it hard to say what it was I'd expected to find and whether I'd found it. National Trust guides, more conventional than Dorothy, and for, I should say, uh, for those of you who haven't seen the play, Dorothy is the central figure in, in People, and she's... Uh, um, uh, a grand uh, aristocratic lady living in a mouldering country house. National Trust guides more conventional than Dorothy, and for whom I almost invariably feel slightly sorry, assume that one wishes to be informed about the room or its furniture on pictures, which I don't always. Sometimes I just want to look, and occasionally 18th century porcelain, chinoiserie and most tapestries prefer to walk straight through. <laughs> Sometimes I actively dislike what I'm seeing. Yet another table massively laid for a banquet, for instance, or massed ranks of the family photos ranged on top of a grand piano with royal visitors given some prominence. Even when I am interested but want to be left alone with the pictures or whatever, I've learned not to show too much interest as this invariably fetches the guide over, wanting to share his or her expertise. I know this is bad behaviour, and it's another reason why I'll often come away as dissatisfied with myself as I am with the house. The first stately home I can remember visiting was Temple Newsham, a handsome early 16th century house given to Leeds by the Earl of Halifax. We often used to go on outings there when I was a child, taking the tram from outside the city market up through Halton and past the municipal golf course to the terminus at Temple Newsham House. An adjunct of Leeds Art Gallery, it had a good collection of furniture, a long gallery without which no country house was complete, besides housing some of the city's collection of Cotman drawings and watercolours. While age nine or ten, I didn't wholly appreciate its contents, I saw Temple Newsham as a wonderfully ancient and romantic place, which it wasn't really, having been heavily restored and remodelled in the 19th century. 
Still, it gave me a lifelong taste for enfiladed rooms. Enfiladed means um, <laughs> if, you, um, uh, uh, if you have a long front to a house and a succession of rooms, uh, if all the doors are opened, you can see from room to room, so there's a sort of arcade of rooms. Um, it gave me a, a lifelong taste for enfiladed rooms and for Leeds pottery, particularly the horses, neither of which life has enabled me to indulge. <laughs> As a boy, though, for me its most numinous holding was a large felt hat, reputed to be that of Oliver Cromwell, with a bullet hole in the crown to prove it. Visiting Temple Newsom was always a treat, as it still is more than half a century later. But back in 1947, though, with the country in the throes of the post-war economic crisis, the push was on for more coal, and the whole of the park in front of the house was given over to open-cast mining, the excavations for which came right up to the terrace. From the state rooms, you looked out on a landscape as bleak and blasted as a view of the Somme an idyll, as it seemed to me then, irretrievably lost. And young though I was, I knew this. But of course I was wrong. It wasn't irretrievable. And to look at the grounds today, one would have no idea that such a violation had ever occurred. And it had occurred too, <coughs> with even greater devastation at other country houses south of Leeds. Nostal Priory was similarly beleaguered, as was Wentworth Woodhouse. Both, like the Stackpool's house in the play, smack in the middle of coal-bearing country, and where the notion, as in the play, of a country house with a mine in the immediate vicinity is far from far-fetched. Nostal Priory is full of Adam furniture, and both Nostal and Temple Newsom have Chippendale desks, like the one referred to in the play. That at Temple Newsom bought by Leeds Corporation from the Harewoods at Harewood House or from the Harwoods at Harwood House, I should say. <laughs> another outing from Leeds, uh, Harwood, Harewood, another outing from Leeds, and a mansion, incidentally, that was once on the National Trust's wish list, but which happily still remains with the family that built it. It is, though, one of those reprobate mansions cited by June in the play. Harewood, or Harwood having, <laughs> having been built from the profits of 18th century sugar and slaves, from one of which is descended one of the National Theatre's noted actors, David Harewood. Previous productions of my plays at the National Theatre have generally been accompanied by a platform evening like this, very often shared with Nicholas Heitner, when we talk about the play and answer questions from the audience. We did one of these evenings in 2009, after the opening of The Habit of Art, and at the end of the session, Nick thanked the audience, saying that my plays seemed to turn up and be put through his letterbox at roughly four-year intervals. <laughs> he felt this was a bit long to wait, and if the audience agreed and wanted something sooner, he asked them to put their hands together. <laughs> this they gratifyingly did. It was a Tinkerbell moment. <laughs> and not having known what he was planning to say, I found myself uncharacteristically choked up, but it did the trick, this play clocking in at three years after its predecessor. <laughs> when I first showed it to Nick, he remarked that it wasn't like anything else I'd done, or anything else I'd done with him. The play, though, that does have hints of it is Getting On, which was in 1971, which, like people, 
is what has since become known as a play for England, sort of anyway. In those days, when I'd less compassion for the audience and for the actors, I went in for much longer speeches than I would venture to do nowadays. But some of the diatribes I put into the mouth of George Oliver, a right-wing Labour MP, are echoes of the complaints more succinctly expressed by Dorothy in People, the complaints generally being about England, in inverted commas. Enjoy, which was 1980, is another play with which People has similarities, in that both, while ostensibly contemporary in setting, have a slightly fanciful notion of the future. At least, I thought of it as fanciful. But what I was writing about in Enjoy, the decay and preservation of a working-class quarter in a northern town, and the last back-to-back -back in Leeds, all came true much quicker than I could have imagined in the decades that followed. The same threatens to be the case with people. Privacy, or at any rate exclusivity, is increasingly for hire, instances of which make some of Bevan's proposals. Bevan in the play is um, a man from a big auction house like Sotheby's or Christie's or Bonham's. Uh, and uh, he's a... I suppose you'd call him a wicked character, though I, uh, as with all the characters you write, uh, one has a, a sneaking sympathy for him. Um, privacy, or at any rate exclusivity, is in increasingly for hire. Instances of, of which make some of Be Bevan's proposals in the play not even outlandish. I had written the play when I read that Liechtenstein, in its entirety, could be hired for the relatively modest sum of £40,000 per night. <laughs> Around the same time, I read that Lancaster Castle, that once housed the county court and the prison that often went with such institutions, was up for sale. That it had also hosted the execution of condemned prisoners probably increased the estimate. <laughs> At one point in 2011, the Merchant Navy War Memorial on Tower Hill was to have been hired out for some banker's junket. That a Methodist church in Bournemouth had been bought and reopened as a Tesco is hardly worth mentioning. <laughs> so what is? Everywhere nowadays has its price, and the more inappropriate the setting, the better. I scarcely dare suggest that Pentonville or Wormwood Scrubs be marketed as fun venues, lest it has already happened. When it came to giving offence, there too I kept finding that I'd been, if not timid, at least over-scrupulous. In the management and presentation of their newly acquired property of Stackpool House, I imagined the Trust as entirely without inhibition, ready to exploit any aspect of the property's recent history to draw in the public, wholly unembarrassed by the seedy or the disreputable. I envisaged a series of events I took to be wildly implausible, but in the light of recent developments, they turn out to be almost tame. I read, for instance, that the audio, audio guide to the National Trust House at Hewenden, once lived in by Disraeli, is voiced by Geoffrey Archer, <laughs> euphemistically described by the Trust as a provocative figure. <laughs> and in the matter of pornography, the Trust has recently sponsored an apps to accompany a tour around London Soho, the highlights of which are not architectural. <laughs> it is apparently selling very well. <laughs> My objections to this level of marketing are not to do with morals, but to do with taste. 
In another connection, though, and not, nothing to do with the trust, I found life had outstripped my paltry imagination. I've no reference for this other than what the Dictionary of National Biography used to call personal knowledge, but talking to someone about what I still thought of as the outrageousness of a country house being made the venue for a porn film, I was told that there was, and maybe still is, an entrepreneur who does just that, arranging similar and equally chilly filming in country houses north of the border. <laughs> so writing the play and imagining I was ahead of my times, I then found I was scarcely even abreast of them. Had the play not been produced when it was, in November 2012, in six months' time, it might have seemed hopelessly out of date. As is made plain in the play, Dorothy is not shocked by porn being filmed under her leaking roof. As she points out, she is a peeress in her own right. The middle class, they're the respectable ones, which is a cliché, but I'd have thought no less true for all that. But then what do I know? My experience of high life is limited, but years ago, I think through George Melly, I used to be invited to parties given by Geoffrey Benison, the, fashion, the fashionable interior decorator. He lived in Golden Square, above Glorex Woolens, dear. <laughs> and there one would find Geoffrey in full drag, and very convincing drag it was too, as he made no attempt to seem glamorous, but instead coming across as a middle-aged duchess not unlike Lady Montdor in Nancy Mitford's Love in a Cold Climate. <laughs> it would be a very mixed bag of high life and low life. Diana Duff Cooper dancing with a well-known burglar sticks in the mind. <laughs> Respectability and the middle class is nowhere. Now that I'm 80, there are two things I no longer have to do, said another grand lady of my acquaintance. Tell the truth and wear knickers. <laughs> What Dorothy is or is not wearing under her battered fur coat, I don't like to think. <laughs> Plays have buds, points at which something is mentioned in one play, though not dwelt on, but which turns up in a later play. Never sure of the significance of what one writes or the continuity of one's concerns, I find these recurrences reassuring, as pointing, if nothing else, to consistency. They can, though, be shaming. In the History Boys, Irwin is a dynamic supply teacher who ends up as a TV historian and government special advisor. Televised in the latrine passage below the Reary Daughter at Rebo Abbey, he speculates on those scraps of cloth on which the monks wiped their bums, some of which have been recovered and are in the Abbey Museum. Could it be shown that one of these fragments had actually been used by St. Aylred of Rivo? Would that scrap of cloth, Erwin wonders, then con constitute a sacred relic? <laughs> it's an unsavoury preoccupation, but unnoticed by me, a related concept has smuggled itself into people, where the notion of historical and celebrity urine is a branch grown from Erwin's bud. <laughs> On a different level, the discussion of the Holocaust in the History Boys relates to Hector's dismay that Auschwitz has become just another station on the tourist trail, with Hector concerned about the proportion of reverence to prurience among the visitors. This recurs, and to my mind more harshly, 
in people, with Lumsden's comment that there is nowhere that is not visitable. That, at least, the Holocaust has taught us. Dorothy's comments about the graffiti done by the Canadian troops billeted in the house during the war echo similar speculations in James Lee's Milne's Ancestral Voices. Wednesday the 7th of January 1942. At Brockett I walked across a stile and down a footpath to the James Payne Bridge, which the Canadian troops have disfigured by cutting their names with addresses in Canada and personal numbers all complete and inches deep, the Vandals. Yet I thought, what an interesting memorial this will be in years to come, and quite traditional, like the German mercenary's name scrawled in 1530 on the Palazzo Ducale in Urbino. He might have added the Viking inscriptions cut centuries earlier in the lions outside the Arsenale in Venice. It was in Lee's Milne, too, that I read about the Jungmann sisters, who in their youth were bright young things and contemporaries of Evelyn War. In later life, they turned, like Dorothy, reclusive, stockpiled the newspaper, the Telegraph, I suspect, reading one a day still, but years behind the times. It's been said by Catherine Hughes in The Guardian that nowadays it's the demotic and the diurnal that matter to us when thinking about the past. And what are generally called bygones make a brief appearance in the play as they regularly do in the below stairs of country houses. Fortunate in having had a relatively long life, I've grown used to seeing everyday items from my childhood featuring in folk museums or even as items on the Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> a brass and pewter gill measure from a milk pail, for instance, wielded at the Bennett back door by the milkman, Mr. Keane, his horse and trap waiting in the street. A posser for the clothes wash and jelly moulds galore. Even so, I was surprised this summer when going round Blickling to see a young man wrapped in contemplation of a perfectly ordinary aluminium pan. Still, he was doubtless a dab hand at the computer, which I'm not, even though to me aluminium pans are commonplace. Other vintage items which were in common use when I was young would be a, wicked, a wicker carpet beater, a wooden clothes horse, a tidy betty. You'd know, does anybody know what that is? No. <laughs> a, tidy a tidy betty is, the, the, uh, with an open fire, the uh, cover that uh, goes below the fire and which uh, shields where the, where the uh, coal falls through. Uh, so you've learned something. Um, <laughs> a flat iron... Spats, um, there were still spats in the drawer at home when I was a child. Black lead and viral. Viral was, uh, I suppose you'd call it a strengthening medicine. Um, it was a kind of malt medicine that we, we wasn't medicine, it was delicious, uh, that uh, we had as, a, as children. The danger of making such a list is that one, one will, in due course, figure on it. Curiously, it was only when I'd finished the play that I realised I'd managed to avoid giving the house a name. I suppose it ought to be the family name, and so Stackpool, except that one proof of aristocracy is to subtly distinguish the name of the house from the name of its location. Thus, in a minor snobbery, Harwood, the home of the Lassells family and their earldom, is pronounced Harwood, 
whereas the village of Harewood, its location near Leeds, is pronounced as it's spelt Harewood. So on a similar principle, I've called the house Stackpole, called the house Stackpole but, it's but it's pronounced Stackpole, it's spelt Stackpole. <laughs> In the play, Bevan sings the praises of solitude with his slogan, PST, People Spoil Things. <laughs> While Bevan hardly carries the moral burden of the play, he has a point and some authorial sympathy. I have tasted the pleasures of singularity myself, having been lucky enough to be in Westminster Abbey at midnight and virtually alone. As an ex-trustee, I'm permitted to visit the National Gallery after hours, and filming has meant that I've often been in well-loved places like Fountains Abbey, almost on my own. So while it's to be hoped that such privileged privacies are never marketed in the way Bevan and the concern would like, the heady delights of exclusion are these days touted commercially more and more and without apology. Uh, I'm coming to the end now, and this is where uh, I talked about uh, getting on my hobby horse at the beginning, and this is probably where I get on my hobby horse. Um, the notion that the 80s in England marked a turnish, turn, turning point keeps recurring, a time when, as Dorothy is told, we ceased to take things for granted and self-interest and self-servingness took over. Some of this alteration in public life can be put down to the pushing back of the boundaries of the state as begun under Mrs Thatcher and pursued even more disastrously thereafter. Though in regretting this and not being able to be more specific about it, Dorothy in her fur coat and gym shoes is thought by her sister the Archdeacon to be pitiably naive, as perhaps I am, who feels much the same. The state has never frightened me. Why should it? It gave me my education, and in those days it was a gift. It saved my father's life, as it has on occasion saved mine, by services we are now told have to be paid for. What is harder to put one's finger on is the growth of surliness in public behaviour and the sour taste of public life. There's been a diminution of magnanimity in government, both central and local, with the public finding itself rebranded as customers, supposedly to dignify our requirements, but in effect to make us available for easier exploitation. The faith, which like most ideologies has only a tangential connection with reason, is that everything must make a profit and that there is nothing that cannot be bought and sold. These thoughts are so obvious, I hesitate to put them down, still less to make them specific in the play. Dorothy is asking what is different about England, saying how she misses things being taken for granted. We were told in the 80s and pretty constantly since that we can't afford to take anything for granted, whereas to my mind, in a truly civilised state, the more that can be taken for granted in terms of health, education, employment and welfare the better we are for it. Less and less are we a nation and more and more just a captive market to be exploited. I hate it, says Dorothy, and she doesn't just mean showing people round the house. Apropos of the closet with the ancient chamber pots, having finished the play, we went for a short holiday in Norfolk, in the course of which we went round Felbrig Hall, the family home of R.W. Ketton Creamer, who willed it to the National Trust on his death in 1969. 
Captain Creamer was a historian and had a well-stocked Gothic library, which is distinct from other such rooms in country houses, was a place of work as Ketton Creamer produced many books. Set in the thickness of the wall behind a pivoting bookcase was a closet with on a table a chamber pot. It was, alas, empty. <laughs> I end as I've ended the introduction to the previous five plays on which we've worked together with my heartfelt thanks to Nicholas Heitner. He brings to life what to me on the page often seems dull. I write plays, he turns them into theatre. His productions of the plays are always a pleasure to work on and he emboldens me in writing them. And it's always fun. Plays is work, said Ellen Terry. No play about it. But then she never worked with Nicholas Heitner. <laughs> but uh, that applies really to the whole of the National Theatre. I'm always... I turn up here every four, three or four years and, and I'm made so welcome. Uh, and uh, and it, it's very uh, heartening. And that, that's at every level of the theatre. Um, but it does have its moments, though, because when I, when I turned up for the, um, the first day of rehearsal of this play, uh, somebody at the stage door said, Oh, hello. Still hanging on, then? <laughs> In the play, um, there's, there's, uh, there's uh, as I say, a mine in, uh, or there has been a mine in the grounds of the, this country house. It's uh, long since been demolished and been turned into a business park. But at, the, at this mine, just before the First War, there was uh, an explosion uh, and in which 93 miners were killed, and there's some reference to that within the play. Uh, and so, um, in the programme, uh, we printed uh, a very good poem by Philip Larkin, The Explosion. It's not like any of his other poems, and I think he said about it that um, he wanted to write a poem uh, as if it were by another poet, uh, and it's slightly more direct than his poems usually are. On the day of the explosion... Shadows pointed towards the pit head. In the sun, the slag heap slept. Down the lane came men in pit boots, coughing oath-edged talk and pipe smoke, shouldering off the freshened silence. One chased after rabbits, lost them, came back with a nest of lark's eggs, showed them, lodged them in the grasses. So they passed in beards and moleskins, fathers, brothers, nicknames, laughter, through the tall gates, standing open. At noon, there came a tremor. Cows stopped chewing for a second. Sun, scarfed as in a heat haze, dimmed. The dead go on before us. They are sitting in God's house in comfort. We shall see them face to face. Plain as lettering in the chapels, it was said, and for a second, wives saw men of the explosion. Larger than in life they managed. Gold as on a coin, or walking somehow from the sun towards them. One showing the eggs, unbroken. <laughs> <laughs>